Oh, good morning, folks. If you're one of those people like me that just absolutely inwardly loves welcoming time, but you can grab your Bible and start turning it to Psalm 123. That's the psalm we're going to be looking at today as we continue our series in Songs on the Road. And we are in particular turning our attention to the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 123 is where we're going to go, so you can find that. But before we read that, I want to read to you a passage which has for a long time fascinated me. And it's from Genesis chapter 32. So if you've got a ribbon in your Bible or you're using a digital version, you can bookmark it or get back to it quickly or whatever. But bookmark Psalm 123. We're going to return there. But go and find Genesis chapter 32 now because that's what we're going to read to begin with. While you're looking for that, I'm going to pray and then we'll read God's word together. Lord, we're about to open up your word and read it, and it is an immense privilege. Your word is powerful. It is alive. Your word can accomplish miracles by your word. Everything that we know in this world, created, seen, unseen, came into being at the power of your word, and now we're going to read it together. So, Lord, help us not to take that lightly. Uh, use your word to shape our hearts and direct our visions towards Jesus this morning, we pray. Amen. Okay, Genesis chapter 32. Have you found it? Great. I'm going to read it to you. You can remain seated while I do so. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible, starting from verse 22. Maybe some of you will find this story familiar. Genesis 32, verse 22. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two slave women, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of Jabok. He took them and sent them across the stream along with all his possessions. Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel. For I have seen 
God face to face, he said. Yet my life has been spared. That event has always fascinated me for some reason. I think it's a bizarre and somewhat disturbing spectacle. (laughs) Two men wrestling in a brook all night. It's such an intriguing twist in the story of Jacob. In in the story of his estrangement from his family. Um, It's it's the sort of a resolving of his past and in this event is a seedbed for the future. I have a lot of of questions about what really went on there. Who was this man? An angel? Was it the pre-incarnate Jesus? Who, Who was it? But the one thing I want to highlight from it is Jacob's unyielding tenacity to extract a blessing from God. I mean, he literally would not let go, right? And I think that we today often view that word and even the the subject of blessing through distorted lenses. I think it's been so stretched and manipulated by popular sort of commercialized theology that we're not really entirely certain what it means anymore. I suspect that most Christians use the term blessing in a very passive sense, thinking about it in a very passive experience, meaning something that we don't even know how to define happens to us. We're very passive in the process. And then we, on the basis of whether we like or we think that that experience was beneficial to us or not, Name it a blessing. Or if it wasn't that great, we say, well, that wasn't really a blessing, (laughs) right? So maybe you walk into your favourite spot in a cafe just after lockdown and your favourite spot by the window is free and you turn to whoever it is with you and you go, oh, what a blessing, (laughs) right? My favourite seat at the cafe is free. Or I went for my morning walk and I saw a cute puppy. Hashtag blessed, right? (laughs) I bought a new pair of jeans and they were marked down at the cash register more than what the sign said. What a blessing. Now don't get me wrong, there are a lot of good and enjoyable gifts that we can participate in in this world, but I think, in fact, I am certain that we can raise the blessing bar a little bit on that, right? Jacob wrestled with God, demanded a blessing from him, and walked with a limp caused by a permanent injury that God inflicted on him. God completely altered his identity, even renaming him, and Jacob, now named Israel, walked away posting on his Insta, hashtag blessed. All right? Why? 
Why did, why did Jacob think that he was blessed? It's there, Genesis 32, verse 30. Read it. Have a look at it. Jacob then named the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, he said, and yet my life has been spared. Because Jacob knew that for us, the human being, to, to come into contact with God face to face, that's dangerous business. God is so utterly holy, so utterly different to us, so incredibly righteous that beside us, anything good that we have to offer, the Bible says, looks like filthy rags. And Jacob not only met him, Jacob grabbed him, wrestled him, demanded something of him, and when, when the man said, let me go, Jacob, he said, no, I'm not. I'm going to take you down in a half Nelson. I'm going to rock and roll wrestling off the ropes. I'm going to come in like Hulk Hogan. I'm going to do all these things, all right? But I am not letting you go until you bless me. And I wonder if Jacob walked away later just going, Phew, I dodged a bullet, right? I was wrestling with God. I demanded something of God. And the blessing was I lived. I met God and I lived. I think there's a better blessing that we could be looking for in this life than some of the things that we so casually call blessings in our day-to-day experience. And I think there's a parallel that exists between Jacob wrestling with God in Genesis 32 and the next psalm that we're going to look at in our Songs for the Road series. And I want you to see if you can recognize that. Now, if you are able to and you're willing to, I would love it if you could stand with me while we read this psalm, Psalm 123. It's only four verses long. It won't take us very long. But if you can find it, Psalm 123, and if you're comfortable to and able to, I would love it if you could stand with me as I read it. Psalm 123, it says this. A song of a sense. I lift my eyes to you, the one enthroned in heaven. Like a servant's eyes on his master's hand, like a servant girl's on her mistress's hand, so our eyes are on the Lord, our God, until he shows us favour. Show us favour, Lord. Show us favour. For we've had more than enough contempt. We've had more than enough scorn from the arrogant and contempt from the proud. And that's Psalm 123, and it is God's word. Why don't you take a seat? This has been a recurring theme in our Psalms of Ascent so far as we've covered them. It really matters where you look. It matters where you look. Psalm 123, verse 1, I lift my eyes to you, the one enthroned in heaven. It stands a little bit in contrast, doesn't it, from the psalm that we looked at last week, where the psalmist lifted their eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Remember that? Here, the songwriter begins by saying that their eyes are lifted to the mighty one enthroned in the heavens. 
I lift my eyes to you, the one enthroned in heaven. It, it matters where we look. It really does. And last week I asked you to consider what it is that you are gazing at in this world. What is it that catches your attention? And as I've continued to try and reflect on that myself this week, it occurred to me that maybe that concept is a little bit too vague. Maybe I need to explain it in more concrete terms to try and convey what I mean when I ask that question. What are you looking at? So here's what I want you to do. We're going to do a little observation exercise. I'm going to put up an um, image on the screen. I'm going to give you 90 seconds in complete silence to observe as much as you can about it. You ready? Go. When the timer hits zero, I'd like for you to turn to a friend or someone near you and tell them what you observed. I'll give you about another minute or so to do that. Take it in turns, pull your observations. You're allowed to talk. About 20 more seconds, share your observations.
All right. There's no hidden meaning to that picture. It's just like a random photo that I just downloaded. People aren't looking at it, just going, hmm, that's deep. I can see, I can see the connections now. It's like when I did art at high school in year 12. Hmm, I think this reflects belonging or lack thereof. As long as you use keywords in your exams, by the way, I know why that works. Here's the thing about observation. 90 seconds probably felt like a long time and it was quiet. In, in the modern age that we live in, we are not trained to observe things for extended periods of time. Our social media feeds flick past at a lightning rate. We scan and move on. We can't afford to do that with God. We don't scan and move on. We, we will be able to look at him intently for eternity and still not plumb the depths of the grandeur of his goodness. If I'd given you longer than 90 seconds, let's say that I'd given you five minutes to observe that picture, you'd obviously be able to probably tell me much more. You would have had the opportunity to observe, to reflect, to even deduce something about that image. Probably your reflections on it would have been much more insightful. Also, the environment in which you observe it. I asked for there to be silence, and it was pretty good. But how quiet something is, how loud something is, how calm or distressed or settled you feel are all important factors as to how well you're able to observe whatever it is that you're looking at. Whether you think that the exercise was important or trivial even affects your ability to observe. They all affect the outcome of your observation. So it matters not only what you look at, and that was the question I asked you last week, what are you looking at, but how are you looking at it? How are you looking at it? How are you looking towards God? And so I'm wondering who would be brave enough to do a time audit over the next seven days. A time audit. The way that you would do that is that you would draw up a seven-day chart. You would divide each 24-hour block into, say, 15-minute increments. And then you would map at the end of the day or at the end of set periods of time during the day, map your activities against it, and we could call it an attention budget. What are you giving your attention to? Don't fall into the trap of trying to forecast your intentions. This Today, I'm going to give three hours to exercise. Yeah, that didn't happen. All right. I'm going to give, students, I'm going to give 10 hours of serious study today. How's that working out? All right. We'd be happy with 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. so, so don't at the beginning of the day forecast what you would like. Look back over the day and say, what did I actually do? All right. How did I spend my 15-minute increments in the last 24 hours? 
I'm not saying you need to spend all day sitting doing your quiet time, right? I'm just going, what did you do? Did you sleep? Did you eat? Did you meet with friends? Did you read something? Did you travel? Did you listen to a podcast or a song? Whatever you did, record it. Make it an accurate reflection of what you actually did. And at the end of the week, you don't have to hand it in to me. You could give it to an accountability partner or someone in your core group and say, how did you go with this? But what I want you to do is just bring it before the Lord and present it to him and, and prayerfully bring your budget, your time and attention budget to him and say, Lord, help me. How do I redeem the time? How do I make it so that my life is about gazing intently at you? How does the psalmist look in Psalm 123? We've got a picture of it here, right? Psalm 123, verse 2. Find it in your Bibles and look at it. Read it with me. Like a servant's eyes on his master's hand, like a servant girl's eyes on her mistress's hand. So we've got two images there. Basically the same thing, but... We just, I think the psalmist is trying to rule out the fact that, you know, there's like a mummy look and a daddy look. You know about that? I say to my wife, hey, hun, where did you put the golden syrup? I grew up in Queensland. I love golden syrup. Where did you put the golden syrup? She said, it's in the cupboard. No, it isn't. I looked. Some people, there's a lot of men laughing here. They, the next thing she says is, did you move anything? <laughs> right? Oh, right. I expect all the things that I'm looking for to be at the front. I shouldn't have to move things, right? The psalmist here is saying, whether you're a man or you're a woman, both of them are looking at their master's hands, and then the rest of the verse says, so, so our eyes are on the Lord our God until he shows us favour. So he's drawing a parallel between what would have been common custom, and it's not common in our, in our culture now, but in that era there were people who owned servants. They had servants, household servants. It was the servant's job, whether they were in that position by force or by choice, but it was that person's job to serve the desire and the will of their master or their mistress. Maybe the closest that we can come to it is if you got an apprenticeship or um, you were working alongside someone who was your immediate superior in a workforce and it was very important that you were available and preemptive of their desire. When I was a young guy starting my first job, I remember my dad said to me, and I've said that to my kids as they've grown up, listen, the, the most important thing that you can do when you start a job is show some initiative. If you finish doing your job that you've been given, either look for another job to do or ask for another job to do. I'll just give the same advice to you, no matter what it was that you were doing. Like a servant's eyes are on their master's hand or a servant girl on her mistress's hand, they are looking to the, servant, to the master's hand, looking if they could deduce, if they could forecast what that master needed. Many years ago, I went to Bible college and 
all the students at the beginning of the year, we didn't know each other, and we were all living in like dormitory type uh, thing and all eating our meals together. And one of the rules at my Bible college was that during a meal time, you were not allowed to ask for anything to be passed to you on the table. I thought, what a dumb rule, right? Stupid rule. So there were big long tables that we all sat around and if the, the tomato sauce or the salt or something was up the other end, I wasn't allowed to ask for it, nor was I allowed to get up or reach across. And what they were trying to get us to do as a group of students was to shift our thinking from what do I need to what does somebody else need. And so the intent was that I would sit down, look at the tomato sauce and look around the table and I would see someone just going, you know, would you like the tomato sauce? I'll pass it to you, you know. And so they were trying to help us think, what does somebody else need and take the initiative and just do it for them? And there's a certain way that we have to look at the world when that's our type of attitude. When I'm thinking about what you need, then I'm looking for the little cues in your behaviour, in your body language, in your actual language. I'm looking for the cues to make me think, how can I serve you if that's my mentality? And here we have this image of a servant, whether it's a male servant or a female servant, and they're both looking at their master, and they're looking at the master's hand, and they're just intently waiting with a sort of sense of drive and purpose to go, how can I serve my master? That's the image, and then the psalmist says, so our eyes, right? Now we're moving away from the image, and he's reflecting it back to us, and he says, so our eyes are on the Lord, our God until he shows us favour. There's a type of way of life, of gazing at God, which isn't just sort of like a passive sit back, look up at God and just wonder when he's going to do something. There's a way of living life where I'm intently looking towards God with a sense of purpose and direction and, and, and almost sort of forecasting, going, where, where is God moving? I want to be involved in that. How is God's hand at work? I want to be a part of that. That's how I, I want to engage with him. And whether that's in a quiet time, it could be, but more than likely it's going to be in the 99.9% of the rest of your day. Whether you're at school doing a HSC exam or whether you're at work or you've got an apprenticeship or you're an employer or whatever it is that you're doing. If you're retired, there's a way of looking towards God in my life just like a servant girl or a servant looks towards their master just going, how can I be engaged with him today? Here's the parallel to Jacob who wrestled with God and refused to let go until he grasped the blessing. We gaze at God with an expectant and preemptive longing for his hand to move. I think in particular we are expectantly gazing with an eye trained to see God's favour. That's what the psalmist says in verse 2. Our eyes are on the Lord our God until when? What's the trigger? What's the thing? What's the reward? Until 
he shows us favor. This is something which is better than hashtag blessed, right? That we would understand the favor of God. Until he shows us favor. Now, if you're an underlining person or a highlighting person, underline that word. It is really important in this psalm. It's a very significant word, and we want to make sure that we get it right. I know it's important because the psalmist goes on to repeat it multiple times in quick succession just after that. Verse 3, show us favour, Lord. Show us favour, right? So it's the favour of God that the psalmist is yearning for. So how do we use the word favour? Maybe the most common way that we would use it is when we say to someone, hey, can you do me a favour? You got any other examples? What, what other ways would we use that word favour? Okay? In just in everyday life. Mostly it's, can you do me a favour? It's probably one of the more common ways we understand it. It usually infers maybe some sort of small act of kindness that's done for or on behalf of somebody else. So, um, Tim gives me a call and he says, hey Chris, I've got to drop my car off at the mechanics at about 10 o'clock. Can you do me a favour and pick me up from the mechanics and bring me back here? It's not the far, mate, just walk, right? <laughs> You're up there saying that you've got plenty of guts to sing out, you could do the walk, right? <laughs> we don't do that. He's my mate. So I say... No worries. I'll be there in a tick. All right? And duck down. Tim would do the same for me. We do that sort of stuff for each other because we're friends. We know each other. And we just, like, oh, yeah, of course I can do that. So it's just a favor, right? Not, no big deal. But the way that the writer here is using that word is, is stronger than that. We, we don't think that, hey, you know what? Jacob wrestled with God all night. And he sweated it out. He even got his hip dislocated so that he could say, hey, God, can you do me a favour? That wasn't his intent. It's not the psalmist's intent. The word that's being used here, which is a Hebrew word that the translators have selected the word favour, at least in the Christian Standard Bible, to try and convey the meaning of, carries a much stronger idea than what we usually mean when we use the same word. So it's worth stopping here, I think, to make sure that we understand what the psalmist is so expectantly and intently looking for. I'm going to look at the hand of God until he shows me favour, right? The primary way that that Hebrew word is defined is to show gracious kindness. Now, we can see where the, the connection is, right? Tim needs to get picked up from the mechanics, I'm going to show him gracious kindness. Uh, but when I use that word, it's not really that strong. But that's the way the psalmist uses it. In some parts of the Bible, that same word is simply translated blessing. 
It's also the root idea behind the biblical concept of grace. That's what the psalmist is yearning for. Grace. I'm looking at the hand of God and I'm I'm begging and serving and watching and I'm looking for grace from God. That's what Jacob was wrestling God for. Grace. That's why he called it a blessing. He said, I have seen God face to face. And yet I didn't die. That's grace. That's what the servant stares in anticipation at their master for. Grace. And isn't that what we long for? Aren't you tired of reproach? Tired of scorn? Tired of contempt? The psalmist is and we are too. We're all longing for grace. We long for grace from each other. Don't we need more of that in this era? Divided ideas and opinions and loyalties and our country is thirsting for grace from each other. But more importantly, we long for the grace of God. We long for his compassionate kindness towards us. I've got good news Psalm 86 and verse 15 says, But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. And that verse alone blows out of the water most people's idea of God. Out there, and let me hazard a guess, there's quite a few of you in here, that verse alone will blow your concept of God right out of the water. So we have this concept of God of God is looking down on us, even as a Christian, just going, perform. And if you don't, bad things will happen to you. You will not get my blessing. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. That's the God we know. John 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and we have observed his glory, the glory of the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 16, verse 17, indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Or Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for you are saved by grace through faith. And then it's not from yourself. It's a gift from God, not from works. No one can boast. That's the good news. God loves to be gracious. He's not the sort of master that we need to watch his hands in anticipation of him swinging it towards us in a blow or him striking us down in condemnation. That's not the sort of God that we know. Romans 8 and 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No, we've received grace upon grace from his fullness. So instead of gazing at him, waiting and and watching for his approval... 
wrestling it from him like some sort of unwilling prize that you need to, to earn. In Christ, we, we see his open hands stretch out towards us with the lavish gift of his grace shown in Christ. And we shift our attention from all the insufficient and tarnished glories of this world that we fill our attentions with. And we lift our eyes to see the radiance of the glory of the fullness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 says this, In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For we're not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus Christ. For, the, for God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shone into our hearts to give light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. The grace of God towards us is life-changing. And so I'm going to ask you again, what are you looking at? And how are you looking? 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, I'm looking forward to that day, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And this is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Jesus stands ready with greater grace, a greater blessing, a greater favour, greater than your sin, greater than the shame of your sin, greater than your failures, greater than all your broken dreams, Jesus stands ready with a greater grace. Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved. God lavishes grace. You know what lavish means? More than enough. So when I sit down, used to sit down at my pop's house and he would make dinner, he loved to make dinner, and he would make corned beef with white sauce with little bits of parsley in it. Like, not white sauce out of a packet, real white sauce, right? And he'd say, dinner time, son. All right, oh, pop. And he'd put like, half a cow <laughs> on your plate. Like, that's more than enough, Pop. More than enough. Oh, come boy, you're growing. He'd put the other half of the cow on, right? <laughs> There's no way in the world I'm going to finish that plate. 
In fact, my body image now is all because of my pop, right? <laughs> I blame him. He would lavish his love towards me in how he gave me a meal. It didn't matter that I couldn't eat it all. That wasn't the point. The point was, I love you, and I'm going to pour out my love for you. I'm going to pile your plate so high with my love. I've lavished white sauce all over that. God lavishes his grace towards us. It's more than enough. Here's how we finish. I want you to look for a better blessing than things that we so easily call blessed in this life. Raise the bar. Gaze at Christ. In the gospel, we have the good news of grace, of God's favour, his compassionate kindness towards us. And in a moment, we're going to take emblems around the table around the room, you, you move to a table and these emblems, they're nothing fancy, right? Just some rice crackers, a bit of juice from Woolies or something. But that's not the point. The point is, is that we see these emblems, this juice and this bread or this cracker and we break it and we drink it and we take it and it gives us a taste of lavish grace. Because in them we are reminded of what it took for God to pour out his love for us. And so we should rush to the table in a socially distanced manner. <laughs> Taking other people's needs into consideration and allowing them to go first. But we should expectantly go to the table because it gives us a tangible reminder to lift our eyes once again and gaze intently at Jesus and the grace of God that we find in him. Don't shrug your shoulders at this. Don't grow weary at turning your attention to see grace in every day. The unmerited favour of God in your life. Don't push it away. Acknowledge your need for it, the need for grace, and cling to the gift of it as your only hope. I know that you are weary of contempt. I am. So embrace the gift of grace which is offered in Christ this morning and find life in him.